This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History. My name is Piotr Kosicki. I'm a history professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the channel today uh, Professor Pamela M. Lee from Yale University. Professor Lee is the Carnegie Professor of Modern and Contemporary Art in the Department of the History of Art at Yale University. She has published six single-authored books, including the book we're going to be discussing today. More on that in just a moment. And she is currently researching the notion of small wars and everyday militarism in contemporary art. Today's topic of conversation is going to be Professor Lee's book, Think Tank Aesthetics, Mid-Century Modernism, the Cold War, and the Neoliberal Present, which appeared in the year 2020 with MIT Press. Uh, Pam, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Uh, I will jump right into it, if I may. Uh, and I should preface this by saying maybe that uh, Professor Lee is a former professor of mine, uh, and that I'm especially happy to be able to engage, uh, because I think that the topic that we're discussing today really fits into a longer trajectory. So I wanted to start there. Uh, think Take Aesthetics was many years in the making. You note this in the book from the outset. How does it fit and how does it build on your earlier work? Uh, it builds on and it fits into my uh, earlier work, um, my intellectual trajectory in, um, well, in many, many ways. Um, I think for those, uh, those who have read um, books of mine, such as Chronophobia on Time and the Art of the 1960s, or Forgetting the Art World on Globalization, Contemporary Art, or another book called New Games, Postmodernism and Contemporary Art, uh, that think tank aesthetics um, is a kind of coda to all of these these books um, in the ways that I generally uh, consider my work as an engagement with the politics of space, time, and system in the art of the last century or so, uh, mid-century modernism to the present. 
Um, so space, time, and system, they're obviously enormous uh, baggy categories. But uh, for my purposes, it's specifically the relationship between art and technology and politics uh, that enables the kind of um, historical and historiographic constellations that's, that I mean to surface in my work. And um, Think Tank Aesthetics, um, and I should say the subtitle, Mid-Century Modernism, the Cold War, and the Neoliberal Present, um, is in some ways a kind of expansion and continuation of the book called Chronophobia on Time and the Art of the 1960s. Uh, in that book, I was very interested in... in um, thinking through um, a kind of trope within 1960s art practice that I felt was um, had not really been identified or discussed at any length, and that was the notion of temporality. Um, and what that book claimed ultimately was that uh, to speak about temporality at that moment was to speak about technology uh, and to think about the various ways in which politics and ideology kind of... Um, um, brought together, I suppose, these concerns. So this kind of goes even further, Think Tank Aesthetics does, in locating such general interests within these new or newish post-war institutions called think tanks. Thanks very much. I uh, am going to prob uh, probe a little bit the Stanford University origins of the book that, that you describe a little bit in the introduction. And, and again, as a disclosure, so we met in Paris for the first time, but Stanford connects us. And uh, I instantly knew what you meant. I thought about the two cultures and C.P. Snow. Uh, I wonder, obviously, STEM is a more or less universal concern, I would say, for certainly humanities scholars, but across fields in the United States. Uh, I'm curious why you, um, you think of the core concerns that animated think tanks aesthetics as being in some ways uniquely, maybe not driven, but at least inspired by Stanford. Yes, that's a, that's a great question. And, and I guess that um, one falls back on the uh, cliche about research as, as a kind of, quote, unquote, digging where one stands, um, which is a metaphor that I'm not especially happy about. But I think that there is something to say about one's everyday experience, uh, mine being a teacher on the Stanford University campus, and trying, um, as, as contemporary critics and historians often do, to think about the kind of givenness of the contemporary moment and its presumed transparency, our relationship to just the way things are, so to speak. Um, so why this is a Stanford book? I mean, there are many ways in which I think it's a Stanford book. Uh, the first is anecdotal, um, but not insignificant. Um, and that is that in the introduction, or at least in, yeah, I think it's the introduction to the book. Um, I speak to the fact that the former building uh, that housed the History of Art Department at Stanford was really a stone's throw away from the Hoover Institute on War, War Revolution, and Peace. And um, it was so close that uh, you could look out the window of your office or the seminar room and see these various 
Hoover fellows kind of going back and forth. And I, and I always wondered, I, I, I knew something about the Hoover Institute, but not a great deal. I just wondered the extent to which Stanford's claims that Hoover was an independent organization, how, how much that was actually true. Um, so there's that. But there are also more, um, well, there are also more immediate associations. I remember talking to the art historian uh, Angela Miller, um, who's an Americanist, and her father was a professor at Stanford. And she told me that when she was young and growing up on the campus, she used to go to the art history library. And there was this strange looking man who was always seated at the table with a big stack of books. And she later learned that it was no other than Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which I thought was uh, rather incredible, actually. Um, what would this, what would this uh, towering figure be doing within an art history library? Uh, is it just a matter of, of proximity, say, to, to the Hoover itself? Uh, then finally, um, I came to understand over the course of many years that whenever, um, or not whenever, but sometimes visiting artists at Stanford would find the Hoover to be an extraordinary place, an extraordinary archive. Uh, so if you were at all interested in um the histories of modernism and totalitarianism or fascism, if art and politics was something that you took seriously, uh, what an incredible resource to have the Hoover right next door. So that's one way in which uh, we could talk about this being a Stanford book. But as you point out in your allusion to the STEM fields, um, that's maybe the more um, meta-intellectual um, Direction or directive in which I wanted to think about these relations. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, this is so obviously colored by my own undergraduate experience where I remember the, the book that we were all mailed before coming to the freshman dorm for the first time was C.P. Snow's Two Cultures. So in that sense, the, the entirety of my conversation throughout my undergraduate career at Stanford was predetermined on that score. In, I, in some I sense. had no idea. That is, um, that's, that's uh, that is something, um, and it's funny because, of course, uh, for those unfamiliar with the Stanford universe, one of the great cliches of campus life is that there are people called techies on the one hand and fuzzies on the other. Fuzzies, of course, representing the humanities. Um, and my twenty plus years at Stanford, um, over the course of those twenty plus years. Uh, one could see very clearly uh, the ways in which the culture of STEM was beginning to preoccupy, um, I mean, not preoccupy, but really assume uh, just an absolutely pivotal um, organizational role for, for undergraduates, graduate students, and certainly faculty there. So let's bridge these two worlds. I, I like the idea of talking both about Hoover, which I'm also, with which I'm quite familiar uh, in my own research trajectory. I've spent a lot of time in the Hoover archives, like you have, uh, but also this question of STEM. And uh, I mean, I, I'm not going to beat around the bush. STEM comes off as something of a... I'm trying to think of the right word. Maybe menace is not quite fair, but certainly a uh, an area that, while 
frequently gray in its normative implications tends toward the darker shades uh, in various capacities and various valences in your book. And before we get into the details of the book, I'm curious if you think it's possible to make sense of this institution that dominates the title of your book, the think tank, without casting it in STEM terms, or if maybe that casting is already part of the problem. That's a that's a great question. I think that it's probably impossible, <laughs> just to be to the point about it. Um, but I also think what's just as important that if the think tank becomes a site in which operational research and the sort of quantitative demands of that particular geopolitical moment, the Cold War, become uh, especially urgent. Um, I also found uh, very useful the notion of the think tank as a space, as a kind of quote-unquote structural blurriness, as an atmosphere even. Um, and so this is Metbetz's work on the think tank. Um, and I found it um, very helpful in getting us to the point, or getting me to the point, in which on the one hand, if the quantitative dimensions of the think tank were uh, essential to uh, the, the uh, understanding slash processing of the Cold War, that something else had to be introduced into its peculiar institutional ecology. And that's where aesthetics becomes maybe the surprising uh, elements in in um, trying to parse its organization and its impact moving forward. Yeah, I confess, while I was reading the book, on various occasions, I would think to myself, I mean, you're, the, the lexicon is so extensive. I, I have a lot of favorite phrases, but I think Cold War Semiosphere is one of my favorites. And I was thinking to myself, I understand the aesthetics. Obviously, that's central to the case you're making. But uh, epistemology, sensorium, semiosphere, these interlock in a variety of, of ontologies and epistemologies. We could, we could really get into some of the lexical nuances, but I'm curious why, and maybe the answer is simple, maybe it's because you're a professor of art history, or maybe it's much more complex than that, but whatever you want to share with our listeners about why you think at the end of the day, aesthetics uh, wins out as the dominant topus uh, to, to, to focus uh, in terms of how we thematize and conceptualize um, for as readers of your book. Great, thank you. Um, well, yes, I think that uh, the the short answer would be because, yes, as an art historian, um, I would be interested in these sort of, um, these, at this point, well-known episodes in which uh, artists in the 1960s were being installed within different think tanks, the Rand Corporation, the Hudson Institute, uh, to experiment, um, to, to produce vanguard art making. Um, it was always in a certain narrative of post-war art history, this was always understood as something uh, completely antithetical to the interests of so-called advanced art. Um, but in fact, the story is much more complicated and it does have to do with the ways in which both creativity and the rubrics of innovation along with it 
are leveraged both within the think tank, think tank and managerial culture at the same time um, to, to provide a kind of impetus for the thinkers who are already in residence or the business people who are already in residence. So what does it mean that um, corporate culture at this moment um, is borrowing the language of art and creativity and innovation and looking to the figure of the artist as a kind of uh, forward-thinking avatar, um, a kind of experimentalist. Um, and it's a sort of romantic notion, indeed, of what an artist actually is or what the artist does. But uh, the more and more I looked into it, uh, I be began to understand that the notion of aesthetics, as opposed to the semiosphere as such, or epistemology, it allows you to do far more, to expand outwards with respect to the kinds of knowledges that one wants to produce or to acquire or to assimilate. It allows you to speak to experience in a way that uh, might otherwise fall within some kind of um, old guard category of, oh, I don't know, metaphysics or something like that. Um, and so there is that that for me is is where aesthetics um, took on, you know, uh, the force that it does in my book. Um, the feeling of something, the feeling of something just in the most banal terms is what I wanted to capture. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Um, aesthetics over um, the other the other. Um, rubrics that you mentioned, uh, because I think finally, um, if we are reading all of this against the backdrop of what we now almost reactively call visual culture, we would want to be very, very sensitive to the dynamics and the history of what constitutes aesthetics at this time throughout these institutional cultures. Thank you very much. So as a point of entry, maybe into that conversation. I mean, for the the listeners, of course, they can't see the book that I have in front of me, but uh, on the, the cover of the book, we have the proverbial Rorschach inkblot. Uh, and if I may, obviously, this is maybe a bit of a, a, a cliche on some level, and I think that's partly your point uh, in uh, your formulation of pattern recognition in the second chapter. But if you could maybe talk for a minute about uh, what types of uh, points of entry aesthetically uh, can help to facilitate uh, grappling with the story or the emergence of think tank aesthetics. Uh, Rorschach, Pollock, uh, there, there are a lot that come up in the book, but are there a couple that you think are particularly indicative or illustrative to someone who's just getting their feet wet in the subject? Um, yeah, well, we start with the Rorschach because it is emblematic of so much of um, this kind of thinking that one associates with uh, the think tank, but other, you know, um, kind of cognate um, academic institutions, I suppose. So um, I could provide a sketch of what that chapter is doing. The chapter is called uh, Pattern Recognition um, Circa 1947. And it takes as its sort of point of departure 
Um, the ways in which the work of an artist, perhaps the artist associated with the avant-garde at this moment, Jackson Pollock, um, how his, uh, his so-called drip paintings were reduced within the popular press to being little more than like a quote-unquote Rorschach inkblot. Um, and the durability of the cliché I found fascinating because uh, once one begins to scratch the surface of what the Rorschach represented at mid-century, one begins to see this, this rather fascinating constellation between a whole range of social scientists um, at mid-century abstract art that would um, touch upon even the abstract expressionists in terms of what uh, these anthropologists and social scientists were hoping to do. And so there then, um, I bring into the conversation um, perhaps the most famous anthropologist, at least American anthropologist of the 20th century, Margaret Mead, um, as well as her, um, her former, um, well, uh, her, her teacher, well, not her teacher quite, but rather uh, her intellectual collaborator, Ruth Benedict, um, and the work that they did for the RAND Corporation. Uh, a book on um, Soviet behaviors during the Cold War. Um, and what surprised me was how seriously um, Mead and company were taking the Rorschach test and various other kinds of so-called projective tests as a way to gauge national character and personality. Um, so part of the story here involves how the interpretation of Pollock's work at mid-century is in, in this kind of extraordinary dialogue with how social scientists and anthropologists were themselves using these projective tests to, to gauge the authoritarian personality, say, in Adorno's terms, or national characteristics um, during the Cold War. Um, so uh, I put a lot of pressure on both uh, Pollock and the Rorschach test as showing the kind of, if not congruence, at least the continuity between how the reception, the interpretation of, of these, these, uh, these works of visual culture from very different, obviously, uh, registers, um, how they were actually in far closer contact than the ways in which art historians uh, typically want to throw off uh, the notion of the Rorschach test as somehow interesting or important in understanding Pollock's project. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the pattern recognition conversation also, uh, so I, I, in my own work, I wear different hats. And as an intellectual historian, I would be tempted to ask very different questions, and I will I ask you a few of them, than as a, a Cold War era international historian. Because of course, Kennan was going through my mind, partly because of the lexicon, but also because he was literally entangled with this process that you're describing and the sources of Soviet conduct uh, has some uh, basic epistemic and I think aesthetic also isomorphisms with what you were just describing from the anthropology engaged by Rand. I wanted to maybe die. I'm going. This is going to sound like a tangent, but I think it's actually quite important. 
I see your book as speaking to a lot of different audiences. And one in conversation in particular among international historians ongoing right now is how to decolonize the field. And it strikes me that breaking down some of these presets and pattern recognition that you identify is a marvelous tool, heuristically, for pursuing that type of end. I don't know if that's something that you had in mind. Uh, Kennan has gotten a lot of attention uh, in scholarship in recent years, but also current events in the international order often provoke this conversation of how do we simply move beyond repeating the notion of being, in your phrase, Cold War legatees, or maybe still trapped in in the same patterns. Yes, well, um, I think that, uh, and, and, and certainly what you're saying about scholars, intellectual historians, international historians of this period in the 20th century, um, what you're saying about the imperative to decolonize these various fields, it certainly holds true for the history of art. I think the history of art uh, <laughs> ranks right up there in terms of the requirements of just this, uh, this, just this project. Um, and anthropology, to be sure, would be the, uh, the discipline historically that is perhaps the most open to such critique. Um, maybe not the most, but certainly that it too um, has its own deeply, deeply pernicious history. So, so on the one hand, I think that um, discussions of, of um, anthropologists in this chapter, such as Franz Boas, are pointing to um, a kind of opening onto a notion of liberal subjecthood at this moment that might mitigate, if only slightly and with great qualification, Um, the sort of colonizing inheritance of anthropology. But I think that um, towards the end of the chapter, when I talk about the work that Mead was doing, um, both both in the United States, Mead's colleagues working in Chinatown, for instance, or or Mead working in the South Pacific, um, what would the projective test and the notion of being able to read um, the responses of their subjects um, in a kind of universal or quantifiable fashion. Um, That is, of course, extraordinarily problematic, extraordinarily so. And it may well be the case that the kind of uh, skepticism that the projective test assumed for many anthropologists, um, cultural anthropologists at this moment, uh, was directed, if not specifically to that critique, at least concerned about what was obviously quite subjective in the ways that, that these visual materials were somehow received. Yeah. Thanks very much. Uh, so if, if I zoom out a, l- a little bit for a moment, I realize we, 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 you mentioned Rand. Rand is, of course, in some ways, the, the, the starting point of the, the, the substantive chapters of the book. So I, I, I do want to circle back to it for a minute. I, I was thinking to myself, this may be too much uh, my, my, uh, my over-reliance on certain trades of the of the of contingency and reliance on thinking about okay what's the real origin point seeking genealogies and i know that's not necessarily what you wanted to do but 
I, I, when I put the book down, I still felt like you discussed Cato, you discussed Hoover, but at the end of the day, Rand was really central uh, to the, the historical genealogy of the aesthetics that you're describing. And in some sense, I guess the question that I would pose is how much, how generalizable uh, do you feel the, the various aspects of the, the, the picture you paint here are beyond, let's say, the example of Rand or maybe the influence of Rand? And I'm thinking here in particular of a word that you use a lot, which I found very important for organizing my thinking about your book, and I think can maybe show up in different valences of our conversation, and that is isomorphism. In other words, did Rand reproduce itself or did Rand merge with an aesthetic that lent itself to isomorphisms? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a great question. And it's a very difficult question because, um, and I say this to you as a scholar of, of Europe as well, that this is very clearly a US-centric book. Um, and Rand becomes the sort of crystallization for a notion of a think tank, um, a notion of think tanks that's as as a reader will find in the introduction at the conclusion still remains, um, I don't want to say baggy, but certainly a little bit amorphous. And maybe maybe that's in some ways to the point of thinking about the aesthetic dimension here. Um, Rand, on the other hand, I think as far as the uh, scholarship around 1960s art making or 1950s or 1970s for that matter, um, it still maintains um, its sort of status as almanac grease within think tech histories. Um, given given that uh, it was maybe one of the most famous or certainly the most um, well documented within mainstream media. So um, at some point I, I talk about an article that appeared in Life magazine in the 1950s. Um, think about Life magazine, a magazine that is, you know, it's just beyond popular. This readership is absolutely extraordinary. And how odd is it then that there's this pictorial that features the likes of Daniel Ellsberg and Albert Wolfstetter kind of doing their thing in these strange new organizations called the Think Tech. Called, um, I found that remarkable, um, that there's a kind of uh, branding, and this, again, might be its Americanist um, aspect. There's a kind of branding and visualization of what happens within a Think Tank that assigns to these this strange new organization um, a kind of uh, visual visual um, appearance that becomes uh, continuous with the notion of a Cold War intellectual or you know a defense strategist. Um, so in that, the personification of the defense intellectual, um, I do see Rand as paradigmatic. Uh, but you're you're absolutely right that the history goes well, well, well beyond that. And I, I, I leave it to colleagues and scholars um, working outside the United States to think about other constellations uh, in the ways that that these institutions uh, emerge and cooperate. Thank you very much. And I, you know, I, I think you anticipated probably something that was on my mind, like you said, as a historian of Europe, uh, considering the geographies 
of uh, think tank aesthetics. That would be, of course, a very different story to try to trace from very different origin points. Although I honestly don't think one could write an analogous book that doesn't start with the U.S. And 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 to to make clear for the the listeners who haven't had the book in their hands yet, uh, the book is substantially about other parts of the world too, whether uh, Vienna or Germany or Chile. It, it is a what my field we like to call a transnational and global story in its own right. But that being said, I, if if I may. Uh, circle back for a second to a phrase you used, defense intellectual, which of course is absolutely central uh, in the book Think Tank Aesthetics. And uh, early on in the book, I was grappling with a point that you make, Pam, about the, to go back to the conversation regarding two cultures, how STEM and the humanities intersect, or how aesthetics and scientific knowledge production intersect, that a think tank really uh, cast or or acted on a certain set of contingent historical assumptions coming out of World War II and particularly the dropping or the, the development and then the dropping of a, a, atomic bombs and how that morphed into, into Cold War strategy and operations research, the necessity of having centers that would combine social, scientific, humanistic, and hard science uh, research. Uh, so f- it is hard for me to, to see that as something that can be equally traceable from other parts of the world. That being said, I am curious if you feel like the uh, questions of U.S. foreign policy in some sense uh, really shape how modern defense intellectuals are. Because it seemed to me you were simultaneously making a contingent historical point, World War II, the origins of the Cold War on the U.S. side, and uh, a much larger point about cultural castings of modernity and how to think about defense intellectuals as a kind of new uh, embodiment of the modern. I just wanted to encourage you to talk a little bit about the intersection there. I, I, I'm not sure I can. It's it's a fabulous and fabulously important question. I mean, I think that the closest I get to it is in my short discussion of Canon, after all. Uh, but the fact that the think tank is that structural blurriness, that kind of space in which you can find, in which you can um, find working together, uh, folks within military strategy, humanists, social scientists, uh, mathematicians, computer scientists. Um, these were all, I mean, very clearly, um, when RAND was established, uh, this was not just a private affair, after all. This was uh, coming very clearly out of, um, well, that post-45 moment, as you just described it. Um so um, what that actual um, actually looks like in terms of policy, um, I think that I might leave that to you to help me discover a little bit more about. Um, but um, maybe this can bring us back to the question of isomorphisms as well that you earlier raised, because I, I do think that's um, something 
um, fascinating. And another, I don't want to say a missed opportunity on my part, but something that we could also sort of speak to in terms of um, a much longer and transnational history of the think tank. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and, and yes, so so you brought up the word isomorphism, and uh, I, I find this an incredibly uh, capacious notion in some ways. Uh, also, I was struck, and we haven't actually gotten to the word neoliberal in your subtitle okay. yet. Okay. We'll, we'll talk. We'll talk about neoliberalism, uh, but I'm struck uh, by the just my my association as an intellectual historian, thinking about the role that analysis of isomorphism plays in a lot of the, the the scholarly writings of canonical neoliberal thinkers, Hayek above all, but hardly exclusively. Uh, I, I'm curious, just as a, a kind of, I mean, let's call this a curio, really, did you... I mean, if you step back and you think back on your own process of, of lexical uh, decision-making, did you like, dislike, or not care about the fact that isomorphism was <laughs> equally prominent as a concept among many of the folks you analyze? Sure. Um, well, I think that it, it serves many roles here. Um, and maybe I could have done much more work kind of unfolding the historiographies. Uh, so I, I believe, um, you'll have to remind me, <laughs> to be honest, I believe that I use the word specifically in relationship to, um, to uh, my goodness, um, not Hayek, uh, but rather to von Bertalanffy, the systems theorist, Austrian, um, at Bersing, who would become um, a kind of uh, go-to figure for many artists in the 1960s thinking about systems aesthetics, elaborating a notion of a work of art that was not a kind of discrete and self-enclosed entity, but in fact was uh, grounded in a much broader kind of cultural, ideological, material ecology. Um, so so um, von Bertolanffy uh, is, for art historians, certainly, um, one of those names that, um, that one identifies um, very strenuously with this notion of structural isomorphisms. If I was going to do um, deeper work on that, though, um, it wouldn't take us very far from um, the readings that I um, produced in chapter one and chapter three, where I talk about uh, the unity of science movement, um, the Vienna Circle, um, logical positivism, and then in chapter three, um, Hayek's own relationship to that earlier 20th century history, where the notion of isomorphism is is um, central, really, to some of his earlier thinker thinking. And so, um, uh, so this is for Hayek completists, I suppose. <laughs> but um, that introduction to the sensory order is a place where he's quite explicit about his own intellectual formation um, and uh, anticipates the interests of the book in terms of what isomorphism might suggest about mental phenomena and material phenomena. So, so um, 
yeah, I, I guess I could have done a lot more with that. But I think that for the purposes of making an art historical argument, um, it was critical to to identify or at least tie this notion to uh, Bertolanffy first and foremost. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. If I may just follow then in, into chapter three, uh, the... the there were there are a lot of things I'd like to discuss with you. I'll try to stick to just a couple from chapter three. This notion of uh, the arche of neoliberalism. Uh, I, I I I might just ask, start by asking if you could say a few words, not to give too much away, but a few words about the original cyber sign and then the restaging of cyber sign between uh, Karlsruhe and uh, Santiago de Chile, because this is an extraordinary and very capacious story that I think really brings together a lot of the threads for me that were emerging throughout the book, art historical, intellectual historical, and, and epistemic and aesthetic. Yes, thank you. I, I think that in some ways it's the kind of heart of the book. Um, it was by far the most difficult to write, and I hope that doesn't show too much. It really um, doesn't. It's a wonderful okay. chapter. <laughs> thank you. Thanks so much. Um, well, I guess I could say just a bit about how I came to the topic. Um, so, CyberSign, um, I first encountered it in discussions around a so-called new media project that was uh, staged in um, the Palacio de, de la Moneda in Santiago de Chile, uh, but also had a complement or pair in the Center for Media Art at Karlsruhe. And this was a sort of revisitation, a restaging of a historic cybernetic initiative called CyberSign that emerged out of the transnational research and work of, um, well, Allende's government and a number of cyberneticians who were uh, working for the popular government in the late 60s, and, or rather in the 1970s, the early 1970s, and a British managerial cybernetician named Stafford Beer, who had done some work on the British Railroad, but was also um, active in, in Latin America as well. Um, the third individual who is very important to this conversation uh, is a designer by the name of Guy Bonsepe, um, who now lives in both Argentina and Brazil as it happens. And he was, um, I mean, his, his story, his history is fascinating. He was um, a student and then a teacher at the Ulm School of Design in Germany, uh, an art school which is often thought of as the post-war Bauhaus. And he came to Chile um, to support, um, well, in part to support this project. So, so the story of... Um, socialist cybernetics, 
because that's what indeed the cyber sign represents, has been very, very well told by historians of science, um, namely Eden Medina, a wonderful historian of science um, who uh, turned her dissertation on this project into a book and many, many others. Um, but what attracted me to this topic as, as a mode of think tank aesthetics was to understand, well, a number of things, one of which is um, seeing the contemporary work restaged in Chile was, you know, that was quite, uh, quite important. But also uh, the fact that accounts of CyberSign in the popular press following her book um, and many people online spoke as much to the aesthetic dimensions of the object, uh, what could be considered the art of socialist statecraft as the technology that, um, that underwrote its historical iteration. And one thing I, I forgot to add is that um, the, uh, the system was destroyed um, shortly after uh, the, the uh, Pinochet's coup on September 11th. So, so that no longer exists. Um, it exists now as a kind of artistic fragment or a monument to the possibility of of um, a moment loss, of a kind of, uh, of the marriage of cybernetics and socialism. Um, and so I thought that, um, well, what is it about its aesthetic aspect that allows us to keep returning to this moment and asking these kinds of questions, which might otherwise be limited to, um, well, I suppose, people who are already engaged within histories and discourses of cybernetics, if not Chilean, recent Chilean history. Um, so that's kind of the backstory for, for what this chapter represents, but clearly it opens on to many, many um, bigger issues. It does. And the, the first one that I, that I would maybe bring up, and I apologize for coming back to, to, to my own training as a historian here, but it struck me really at the, the, the story of, of the, the, the Allende government and the Pinochet coup, obviously, as you indicated, it could lend itself to all kinds of different approaches. But the restaging, uh, and I would say the digital slash transatlantic restaging, as you explore it, from an art history standpoint, in uh, chapter three of your book, really got me thinking about historicity and historicity and that phrasing uh, in the, the subtitle, the neoliberal present, which, which you also explain at length in that chapter, along with um, what neoliberalism is more generally. And I uh, guess I maybe have a, a two-part question for you, but focus on whatever you choose because i think our listeners would be interested in whatever whatever balance you prefer there's a quotation that really struck me in your description of uh of the this this restaged multi-node metagame right the 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 name of the installation uh that no matter the seductions of contemporary media, in other words, history drags us back, history will pull us out of the feedback loop of a perpetual present affirmed by the novelty of the game's techniques. And of course, I'm taking this somewhat out of context, but it was a striking notion for me in that there's an anti-historical aesthetics or an anti-historicist, maybe is a better way of putting it, aesthetics that you identify in the restaged 
version of CyberSign. And it's something that you put into conversation with a wide range of sources, some of which I teach and write about all the time, like Fukuyama's infamous, whatever other adjectives we want to give to it, uh, essay and later book, The End of History. Uh, From your standpoint, this type of restaging, does it give the lie to a certain notion of the historicity of cyber sign and of think tank aesthetics more generally? Or does it show maybe a different kind of direction that you can't find in the earlier uh, examples and cases that you trace elsewhere in the world? Yeah, yeah thank you. I, I really appreciate this question. I think that's In fact, the logic of recursion, which is central to the contemporary restaging, but was only inchoate with the original cyber sign, is critical to how the artists or um, want to think about this recent history in the present. So I don't see it as an evacuation of history. I see it as Uh, putting history on repeat to understand that what we think of as the quote-unquote contemporary neoliberal moment, that in fact this is not just, um, it's not just punctual to 1973 as the kind of before and after moment of, you know, uh, what happens in Chile, but it has a much, much, much longer history. I mean, this is a basic point, but fundamental, that does indeed bring us back to, um, well, to Hayek, as as we were mentioning earlier, and to the ways in which the kind of, um, the the ways in which um, a certain relation to Vienna school positivism on the one hand, but uh, also very clearly, um, the the moment of of the Mont Pelerin Society, you know, um, in the 1930s, how how um, these are all kind of points in this this um, this cosmology of how we can think about neoliberalism um, and the complexity of it, the layeredness of it, the sort of proliferation of historical references, it seems to me um, they're made available by a work like um, the multi-node metagame. Um, But for a historian of art, say, or an intellectual historian, uh, what, what might be the inflection points or the points of stress that we want to take away from thinking about stepping outside, if only provisionally, um, these, these models for making history? So that's partially what I wanted to do in the chapter. And the chapter, uh, for, for readers who have not encountered the book, um, it's organized around a series of so-called artifacts that do kind of skip back and forth across the 20th century as if to pose these points on a network in a relationship of, um, in a kind of perspectival relationship, I guess. Um, So you look at um, this, you know, contemporary work of art, but you also want to think about other histories of art in which, um, well, for example, I talk at some point about, the reading room associated with the Soviet avant-garde and the Soviet aesthetics, and how that too has kind of reappeared within recent museum stagings and so on and so forth. So um, the question for a historian of art would be, um, in the restaging, 
does the work itself, does the aestheticization of the work, presumably, does that detract from what was historically contingent, timely, polemically, ideologically urgent about the original, so-called original work of art? Or does it rather provide us with an opportunity to return to those moments and think about the possibilities of what might have been? Um, and I guess I'm, I'm falling on the second option with this chapter. What might have been? I was yes. going to say for a story that in some ways is very dark, of course, the 1973 RK story, uh, the, 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 the consequences or the implication that you draw out are actually more optimistic. I find it to be maybe actually one of the most optimistic uh, portions of the book. I, I, exactly as, <laughs> I don't know if you thought about it that way when you were writing it, <laughs> but um, I, 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 you know, it, strike, it struck me just to, to, to stick with this point for a second. You describe at one point in, in the chapter, the original cyber sign as a kind of socialist Gesamtskunstwerk. And I, and you also apply the, the phrase creative destruction more generally to you know, the, the, the destruction of the Allende government, but also to this kind of tension that defined the 1970s and onward within Chile and, and inflected the entirety of the neoliberal present as you explore it. I am struck particularly on this point you just raised, Pam, about what the restaging means in terms of a new opportunity. Uh, is it made possible? In some sense, it has to have been by that creative destruction. I wonder, though, about the neoliberal inflection on, on this same score. And, and uh, something, I, I don't want to go, go on for, for, for into too much depth, but the, the cybernetic, the role of cybernetics in neoliberal thinking, Hayek, and of, but, but everyone. The, it, it, neoliberalism is about cybernetics in so many ways. And so there's a, a, a colonization or an epistemic tug of war that I see playing out in the restaging as well. And I'm just curious if that's something you had in mind when you meant that you do see an opportunity for a, a new take or a, you didn't use the word rebirth, but it's what I was thinking when you were talking. Yes, well, I, I, I don't know if I'd use the word rebirth, which does sound optimistic, uh, frankly. Uh, but yes, I think that the tug of war, the ideological kind of um, war about the purpose, the role of cybernetics, uh, the fact that Nayende could see within it the ways of managing a new socialist government. You have that, you have Hayek on the other side, and then, of course, what happens after the coup and the installation of, well, um, <laughs> you can only think, you don't have to think, and the chapter goes into this, but just um, the sort of relationship between many of these, uh, these, these scholars associated with think tanks within Chile post-1973. Um, and there it would seem very clearly that, uh, that, that the neoliberal uh, domain won out. Um, I would not argue otherwise. I do wonder, though, and maybe this is, I'm not sure if it's quite optimism, but it allows for a crack potentially in the system that within the interests or within the sort of patterns of recursion that the return stages and restages, um, can we as historians in our respective fields, 
can we find some kind of toehold into this material to resuscitate and make vivid for our students the wages of history, particularly around these kinds of media technologies. Um, if if uh, cybernetics is equivalent to neoliberalism, um, what does it mean that in dealing with Web3, I suppose, or AI, um, what kind of genealogies can now be written with respect to those earlier histories too? And if you are going to write those histories, um, say, what, what peculiar genealogy takes us from Hayek isomorphism to, uh, to neural networks, I suppose, to cybernetics and AI? Um, what, what does that allow for um, our relationship as scholars and thinkers to, um, to work critically with such material to provide some kind of tools? And you can qualify those tools however you like. For, um, for students, for our students, as a way to know that, quote unquote, this is not just the way things are. So as a scholar of the so-called contemporary, historian of contemporary art, which sounds oxymoronic to many people, um, so much of what I set out to do is to challenge uh, students' um, relationship to the present moment as not a historical, quote unquote, inevitability. And that's what I hope the chapter is doing in some very small and qualified fashion. Well, I think you very powerfully set out an agenda for scholars to continue working uh, exactly in this set of topics. And I do hear the optimism. Well, <laughs> I thank do. You. Thank uh, you. But I, if I may, just sort of a nuts and bolts type follow up, because, of course, you use a wide range of source material in this book. It's incredibly sourced in a way that I think it's the, the sourcing is part of what would should draw scholars from over a dozen different fields to this book, potentially. I kind of that's an arbitrary number. My point is a lot of different fields and Arguably, I would say it's the type of book that really dissolves disciplinary boundaries. Uh, what kind of source work, or what actually, let, let, let me phrase it, this a little bit differently. Based on your own experience, exploring all kinds of different media and different kinds of archives, some sitting in the archival reading room uh, at Hoover or in other cases visiting uh, other think tanks or museums or installations elsewhere, uh, where should uh, a graduate student or a postdoc, a junior scholar, where could uh, such a scholar productively start? I don't mean specific sources, but it seems it might seem kind of daunting. I think <laughs> the initial well, starting daunting. position. Right. I'm sorry. Um, well, uh, <laughs> there's a reason why the book took me as long as it did to write, um, because I did have to canvas very, very widely and in fora that I am perhaps professionally and intellectually not really in the greatest position to assess. So a lot of self-study uh, went on. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if part of the ambition was to think about... Um, interdisciplinarity as a sort of foregone conclusion for the ways that uh, university culture operates now. Um, 
one thing that was essential was to parse precisely how the emergence of the STEM fields um, progressively has come to colonize that debate around interdisciplinarity. Interdisciplinarity, you know, it's 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 um, it seems to be beyond old news at this point. Um, but again, thinking about the contemporary moment, um, why not step back a little bit and do some of the work and the reading about how that this is not anything, um, this was not a foregone conclusion. This was clearly the result, the long result of any number of um, intellectual and, and policy actors who um maybe conspired is too strong a word, but who collaborated in the creation of this, this new kind of academic ethos. And so that brings me then to um, how, as a scholar of art, I would need to have some kind of competency in materials that um, are not a part of my traditional disciplinary purview, right? Um, and that was great fun, uh, but very, very difficult. And I should say also, really surprising. So um, anecdotally, I can tell you about um, moments in the RAND Corporation in Santa Monica, um, where I was, um, you know, people were very friendly, uh, but deeply skeptical, I have to say. And I felt that, you know, I was kind of accompanying anywhere I went. I felt as though, um, you know, I had access to this material, but access was always itself kind of vetted repeatedly as I drew out files and looked at this and that. Uh, it struck me at the same time that many of the, um, many of the sources or many of the personal archives that I was interested in had at that point early on not been uh, tagged and referenced in the ways that I think uh, many of us within acad um, academia are used to approaching this material. So that was interesting because it said something about the historiography of the archive itself. Um, so there's that. I'm sure it's very, very different now. Um, as far as graduate students coming to this material um, and finding a way to, I don't know, accommodate the range and the breadth of it, um, there, there is a reason why this is you know, my third or fourth book. It took a lot to, to identify and then to finally travel to the places that I felt um, would make most sense for the argument or that confirmed, you know, my, my hypothesis around what it is that think tanks are doing. So um, the short response to your, your question finally is, um, Yes, maybe um, I need to do more work thinking about histories of science, but this was something that I found utterly essential in making uh, the case around the role of uh, Albert Wallstetter and the art historian Meyer Shapiro. Uh, but the anthropology section, that's felt much closer to what um, I do as an art historian. And then finally, uh, the third and the fourth chapter brought me more, um, brought me closer to contemporary art, which is uh, clearly a place of greater comfort for me.
Thank you. Uh, we're coming close to the end of, of the conversation. I, I'm sorry to say that as I'm really, really enjoying it. I know our listeners are as well. I, I hesitate whether or not to bring up Ukraine and Vladimir Putin. I think I have to in some sense because I mean, I, I'll say this, and I know you mentioned earlier that you want to leave the policy analysis to others. That's not what I want you to do. But I'm curious, since your book came out in 2020, if you feel differently at all about any of your argument, and maybe you don't. I don't I don't think you, you need to. But one thing that has struck me rereading your book uh, in pre- preparation for our conversation is uh, something that I also hear from my graduate students a lot who want to understand better both what's going on in Ukraine on the ground and the U.S. positionality and the positionality of U.S. knowledge production about Ukraine's place in the world and that there's a certain insufficiency to both the maybe let's say maybe the more classically epistemic side and then the aesthetic side of the think tank aesthetics. So I, I haven't heard it from students in these words, but I start I'm starting to think that maybe there is a shelf life here in that the the being legatees of the Cold War hamstrings us in ways that can be added and productively also incorporated into a conversation you've started. I know that this is all still ongoing. Talk about contemporary, but if you have any thoughts, I know we'd love to hear them. Yes, thank you. Um, I think that being a legatee of the Cold War means first and foremost recognizing that. Um, you know, um, and that's a. I, I I don't mean to be. Um, <laughs> that that's that sounds rather. Um, I don't know. Um, that's not exa- the tone of that that response is is not what I intended. I think that uh, your graduate students, of course, are abundantly aware of these histories. Um, undergraduates have a far less nuanced or developed appreciation of these terms, um, and it's true that our relationship certainly within the popular media, to something called the quote-unquote Cold War, is one in which folks still insist that 1989, 1990 rolled around, and here we are, um, the end of history, and freedom prevails. Very clearly, that is not the case, very clearly. Um, How interesting would it be then for us to step back and think about the return of all these um, these sort of martial rhetorics around his, historical wars to consider what might be happening in Russia or Ukraine. The Cold War is only just one of those, the soft Cold War. Um, I think about the Civil War very clearly as, as something that serves as a kind of rhetorical placeholder for how uh, many people wants to approach the situation of where we are today. Um, so uh, obviously that would be US specific, but I think that the terms apply generally to what's happening in Ukraine. Um, and so if we keep reaching back to this language of the Cold War, if I understand you correctly, then we are missing an opportunity to think 
think more cogently about the here and now. I, that that I, I understand completely to be true. But on the other hand, there is something to be said about, um, well, histories in particular around um, nuclear strategy that very much inform where we are today in Ukraine. So you probably read um, the, the opinion piece by Tim Snyder in the Times the other day about why the notion of the nuclear threat, what service, what, what does that notion perform within um, Russia's particular um, propaganda about its, uh, its um, presence in Ukraine? Uh, so those are the things that I would imagine we, we do still need to be very, very concerned about, even as uh, your larger point is certainly well taken about the timeliness of the book. Thank you very much. Uh, it's going to be my last question now. I'm sure our listeners would love to know a little bit more about what you're currently writing. Thank you. Um, so it's uh, I, I continue on the topics of war. Um, I'm thinking about... Um, notions of what I call everyday militarism um, in the present. Um, But strangely, if I was thinking about a history of the Cold War in the 20th century, this this project reaches back to the 18th and early 19th century to kind of, uh, if not recuperate, at least think about what Clausewitz's understanding of a small war in what ways that notion might help us to understand where we are now. And certainly, you know, uh, military scholars, Clausewitz scholars, uh, the interest in the small war in Clausewitz has been, um, there's been a great deal of literature about that in the last 15 or so years. Um, What does it look like when we think about everyday life, so-called, as a small war? That's a, that we are so habituated to uh, the notion of being under siege, that we are fighting this and that. Um, what are the kind of technologies that, that condition our responses to this, um, what I would consider a kind of uh, contemporary ethos and condition? Um, so I'm looking at many contemporary artists who are thinking about militarism, thinking about firearms technology and histories of firearms technology. Um, so it's a less than optimistic topic, uh, but but uh, there is some continuity between what I'm doing with this last book and and this one. Uh, clearly, always a timely topic. I, I I hope that as in our discussion of chapter three of Think Tank Aesthetics, there's an optimistic note that sounds nonetheless uh, that I you find. So. I hope so because it's not a different. It's it's certainly not something. Um, it's not exactly the most pleasurable topic to research, as you can imagine. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us so much about the process and the ideas of Think Tank Aesthetics and also your new work. Uh, I'd like to thank Pamela M. Lee again for joining us. Thank you so much, Pam. Uh, I would like to remind everyone in the audience that the book we were discussing was released in 2020 by MIT Press. The title is Think Tank Aesthetics, Mid-Century Modernism, the Cold War, and the Neoliberal Present. Thank you again. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks very much and wishing everyone a good day. Thank you for listening.